Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew, where we serve a weekly menu of industry commentary based on what the market has to offer. I'm Andrew Friedman from Tokeland.com. I'm Jimmy Bradley from The Red Cat. Uh, today, we are going to spend some time uh, talking about chef documentaries. Uh, Jimmy, we're kind of in a golden age of movies, television shows, uh, straight-to-video documentaries uh if you want to know about chefs and how they do what they do and where they come i mean there's basically no element of a chef's life that you cannot get on your laptop yeah, look up on netflix yeah and spend hours uh, experiencing uh two recent ones we spent a very few minutes last week spontaneously talking about king george which is area uh, erica frankel's documentary about george perrier of lebec fenn the late lebec fenn in uh philadelphia and then uh just recently uh, on video on demand and just in the last week on netflix uh for grace which is Kevin Pang and Mark Helenowski's film about Curtis Duffy and the genesis of his three-star Michelin restaurant, Grace, in Chicago, uh, came up online in a big way. And we both have just watched that in the last week. We're going to spend most of this show today talking about those two movies, one of which documents uh, the end of a restaurant and one of which documents the beginnings of a restaurant, uh, but both of which we feel like really have much in common and say a lot about, uh, you know, what I would broadly call our industry, but really, Jimmy, your industry uh, and what you guys like you do for a living. But before we do that, um, we're going to do something a little different here. We're thrilled to have uh, an old friend of both of ours, Andrea Strong, who's a food writer based in New York City. Uh, Andrea's written for the New York Times, uh, Architectural Digest, Syriots Eats, Edible Manhattan. It goes on and on. Uh, also, for years, has her, had her own uh, blog, The Strong Buzz, yeah. which we were talking before the show, Andrea. You were really sort of the first high-profile food blogger. Yeah, I, I am a dinosaur. <laughs> I am a blogging dinosaur. But the Strong Buzz started when? Uh, yeah, it started in 2003 um, as sort of a way to get my work out there and all of the freelancing that I was doing and the news that I was that I had just from eating out all the time and hanging out with Jimmy. Right. Um, and it just sort of blossomed and really became something. I had no idea that people actually wanted to hear what I had to say about where I was eating, but apparently they did. Right. So, so went that, on for 10 years. And that predated, I mean, you predated Grub Street and, yeah. and a lot of the other sites. Um, I look at it, she's the, Andrew's the uh, the OG, you know. So not, I wouldn't say dinosaur, <laughs> I'd say the OG, the OG of the New, New York food blog. <laughs> so we, it was an interesting sort of dovetailing of uh, circumstances. A number of friends had said to me and Jimmy, you know, love the show. Uh, you know, people who don't know you guys maybe don't know who the hell you are, you know, and here you are. I don't know how many people even necessarily without piecing it together realize that I, Andrew, am a writer 
and you, Jimmy, are a chef owner, operator. Uh, And around the time that we were starting to get this feedback, uh, Andrea approached us and said um, that she wanted to interview us for one of the places where she writes, which is the Open for Business blog, uh, which is Open Tables blog. And we said, well, why don't you come on the show? We'll spend the first few minutes of the show, and let's just do the interview on the air. So we're going to turn it over to you and, okay. and our listeners maybe will get to know us a little bit better and then we'll move into our whole documentary fest well i've known andrew and jimmy um a long time probably 10 years maybe more 20 years yeah much more 20 than 10. years much more than 10 um so uh but i actually don't know a lot about how each of you got to the places that you are right now in this beautiful uh room off of roberta so andrew i'm going to start with you you went to columbia you're an english major and um you were producing tv and film and then you were an editor for a tennis magazine so tell me how did all of that land you writing cookbooks with alfred portali and lauren torrendell uh yeah so well i was an assistant to a film producer mm-hmm. um uh trying to be a screenwriter um tennis writing came a little bit later um, and the screenwriting thing uh, for me, I got, it's a very common story, excruciatingly close to something happening mm-hmm. and nothing happening. And, uh, to make a very long story as short as I can, I, um, got out of the film business cause I had very little time to write actually, cause it was so, it's such a demanding job. And, uh, I didn't know what else to do for a living, you know, and I got a job. I just thought, what do out-of-work writers do? And this was before Ken Cosgrove's useful example on Mad Men. Um, (laughs) But I got a job uh, with a PR firm. I thought, well, you know, I'll write press releases. That's what you do as an out-of-work writer. Mm -hmm. And I happened to go work for one of the top food PR companies in New York. It was a company called Kratz & Company, where a lot of people who now own their own agencies started. Uh, and one of my clients was Alfred Portali and of the Gotham Barn Grill. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if he and other clients had a speech to give or a difficult letter to write or an article that they needed ghosted, I just started doing that for them. And then, uh, you know, in what I thought would be a one-time lark, uh, Alfred asked me to write the Gotham Barn Grill cookbook for him. That was the first thing I ever got paid a nickel to write was that cookbook. Wow. So did you leave the firm and do that on your own or you did it as part of an, being... I, the deal I had with David was that uh, my boss at the time was no problem, great. I don't want to see it in the office. So okay. uh, I wrote... And the book, it's a longer story. There was, a, there was an author before me that didn't quite work out and uh, a co-author before me. And so it was a nights and weekends proposition. It was a lot of sort of work all day at the Mm -hmm. firm, uh, take off my jacket and tie, stay in the office and like write. Sometimes, I mean, I was in my 20s. Sometimes I'd write overnight, run across the street to Equinox, uh, take a shower and come back to work. Yeah. So anyway, that's how that's how I got started in that. And then Saw an opportunity, never wanted to be a food writer, saw an opportunity through the success of that book to maybe parlay it into something, and left my job and uh, started, you know, looking for projects. And that was 20-some, collab- mostly collaborations ago. And and, uh, uh, and then I did my own nonfiction book in 2009 called Knives at Dawn about the Bocuse right, Door right. cooking competition. And currently writing my second nonfiction book, which is a history of the American chef's of the 70s and 80s, which Dan Halpern's Echo is going to publish next year. Wow. So that's the, that's the thumbnail. Um, so, um, and now let's just 
check in with Jimmy. Um, Jimmy, you uh, have had the Red Cat for almost tw- 20 We're years. going to be 17 yeah. in about a month. And um, you've mentored some of the most beloved chefs in our industry, Harold Dieterle, Joey Campanero, Amanda Freitag, Aaron Sanchez. Mikey Price. Uh, Mikey Price. Um, but you grew up in, in Rhode Island eating like kind of strange lunch foods. I just wrote a story that you were in about the strange lunches that your mother would pack for you, Ezekiel's bread with like sprouts and peanut butter and Yeah, it was my, it was my stepmother. And, your uh, stepmother? We had, we had a, a dual life, you know, living with my father was one way and it was a little more hippie and a little more mm-hmm. uh, freewheeling and then living with my mother. My mother lived in Philadelphia. My father lived in Rhode Island and I lived in both all the time. I never really lived lived in one place in my life more than 18 months uh, until I moved to New York. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it was um, organic peanut butter with sprinkled with powdered milk in between Ezekiel bread slices. Yeah, that'll put you in the kitchen to figure out how to make something better. (laughs) With the carob bar. (laughs) Naturally. Tiger's milk bar, one of those 70s. Yeah, this is a long time ago. Um, so I read that you actually got a scholarship to CIA and you turned it down to just kind of drive around the country and cook and, and get your culinary education that way. Is that yeah. correct? Well, it's it's mostly correct. And we touched on it with the George Perry piece. I, I worked in a restaurant in Philadelphia that's mm-hmm. no longer there. It was next door to Beckfin. And it was the... Top five, one of the top five, you know, nicest restaurants in Philadelphia. It was nicest Italian restaurant. And we did a dinner, uh, Beckfin in this restaurant. And we raised like 40 grand for this thing called the Book and the Cook. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, back in the day, Craig Claiborne was a pioneer of that. And uh, so um, I was the only cook in both kitchens that never went to culinary school. So I said, hey, can I get this uh, scholarship, one of these scholarships? And my boss uh, said, yeah, sure. And Chef Perrier said, yeah, sure. And I I did all the work, and I got accepted to the CIA, and I was supposed to start in November, and the school called me in August and said this, that, and the other thing, and we want you to pay for the first semester. I said, you you guys have 20 grand in your bank account paid up front. Like, that's that's Mm -hmm. not fair. So I went to work, and I talked to my boss, and he said, I can't help you with that. You know, he was a CIA alum, and the guy who owned the restaurant was a CIA alum, and... So I was really, really disappointed and disenchanted, and it was one of those times in my life where I, I just felt like, if you're not going to help me, I'm right. just going to give up. You know, my deal with them was, I'll go to school, and I'll come back, and I'll work here for two years. So that's a four- or five-year plan mm-hmm. of not making any money. Right. And, uh, you know, a lot of sacrifice, but it, those were the sacrifices I wanted to make, and I was willing to make. And I was devastated, you know, about the school thing, but really, I just woke up one day, and I was like, I don't feel supported by any and the school's already got the money and no one's championing me in any way Mm -hmm. so I went to work and I had a simple conversation with the boss and the owner and they were like yeah I'm sorry we can't help you and I said listen I quit and I got up and quit and I moved to Vail Colorado and you know within three years I was you know a a leader of a kitchen Mm -hmm. so it was really it was it was a great experience in the end but right. it was you know one of Sounds my worst kind of painful. yeah my where I was I was totally heartbroken mm-hmm. and you know I mean I was I wasn't like 18 years old right out of high school but I I was maybe you know 20 21 years old at that time yeah and then uh what brought you back to New York uh oh, that's a great one I was um 
I was the chef of this restaurant, and these customers approached me, and they said, hey, we really want you to be the chef of our new restaurant we're building out in Colorado. I said, great. So they hired me. I moved out to Colorado. The restaurant was in a hotel. I lived in the hotel. Mm -hmm. Four months went by, and they came to me, and they said, listen, it's never going to happen. We can't get the permitting. It's never going to happen. You're fired. (laughs) (laughs) I I just moved my whole life out here, quit my job, la, la, la. I said, Can you, how about giving me a little walk away money? And they were like, yeah, sure. That's that's no problem. So they gave me, you know, not a lot, but not a little, you know, maybe 10, 20 grand or something like that, which to me was a, yeah. a year's salary. Right. <laughs> um, and I didn't know where to live. I didn't have anywhere to live. I didn't have, I was living in a hotel room for four months and I was living in Martha's Vineyard before that. And when I was living in Martha's Vineyard, I, I, I would travel in the winters. So I right. really never had a home. I called a friend and I said, you know, this is my story. We were just talking and she said, hey, there's a a furnished sublet. I can get you in New York. Come. Three months. So I was like, that's great. Three months will give me some time to clear my head and Mm -hmm. figure out what's next. I arrived on a Monday in, you know, I believe January 94. And within two weeks, uh, I was offered an executive chef position and the woman upstairs from where I was living passed and the landlord offered me the apartment. Wow. So it was really like, holy hell, this is a hard town. This is a tough town. People are talking to me. I don't even understand what they're saying. <laughs> but like, I got a job and I got an apartment. And someone died and I have a place to And live. I didn't look for either. Like, <laughs> this has got to mean something. So I really wrapped my head around that kind of... Um, you know, I don't know if it's zeitgeist or if it's it's just it just felt it's in the stars. It was kind of like my first cooking job, serious cooking job. I was like, I feel good. I get this. I feel calm. I'm not I'm not thinking the way I was thinking. And I was cooking to pay for school. And right. then I was like, what? what? This, I feel great doing this. I feel comfortable. I feel confident. This feels natural. And that was a little bit of how New York felt when I when I moved here. So uh, I just, you know, and where was the restaurant? What was the restaurant you worked at? First one? Um, it, it was on 17th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue, and it was like this, you know, back in the day in New York, it was you go to dinner, then you go to a nightclub. And right. now there's lounges and bars mm-hmm. with couches and not a lot of nightclubs and not a lot of dance places. But this was one of those first ever, you know, early 90s, you don't need to leave here to go to a dance club. We can, you know, figure out a party to have here all night. Mm-hmm. And it was that kind of place. and. Those kind of customers, it was really a great learning experience for me. It wasn't a great job, but it was a great learning experience. And I, I didn't have the job for very long, maybe maybe a year or so, and mm-hmm. um, I was let go. But And then you work with Jonathan Waxman and... Is that right? Yeah, yeah. We worked. uh, We have a long history that's you know a little too much for this interview, but I ended up uh, working for him in opening Bryant Park Grill when he moved back to Manhattan. And then the Red Cat in 1999. Yeah, I moved here in '94. Opened the Red Cat in '99. Um, So, given that the Red Cat has been around so long, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you make a restaurant something so evergreen or so popular for so long. I mean, the chicken, li- the calves liver rather, ah, yes. uh, the string beans, the, the hospitality, the consistency, and it's, you know, there, there's a lot going on culinarily in New York city. Yeah. So why are people still eating at red cat and how did you manage to figure out the formula? 
I, I don't know if it was a formula more so than a thought. You know, like at the Red Cat, it's a little bit of the aim was true, you know, in the mm-hmm. sense that it's all I ever wanted. You know, I, would, I wanted a, a non-affected or non-precious place. You know, maybe you call it a neighborhood place. You know, it, it, it over it under promises and over delivers, you know, mm-hmm. and um so, uh, and the other thought was, you know, I want to have my own business and I want to have it by the time I'm 30 and I want it to last forever and I never want to change it. You know, I don't want to go 10 years and reconceptualize it. I don't want to do these things and that you see other restaurateurs do for one reason or another. I just, I wanted it to be the way it was from the moment it it was born and it turns out that it was um an idea that that people were ready for in new york at the time and and still now so you know restaurants are about how you're made to feel you know it's not just this one thing about the food or you know it's really an all-encompassing package and it's and it's how you're made to feel which is you know somewhat of the definition of hospitality Mm -hmm. in a sense and you just got behind the, the, you know, there's no reason why waiters in New York should be surly. There's there's no reason why waiters should tell you how to eat, you know. I mean, people should make suggestions, but, but as a guest, you should you should get what you want, and you should be made to feel comfortable. So, like, when we opened, everybody wanted to talk about comfort food. I was like, I, I think you're missing it. You right. know, comfort food is meatloaf and mashed potatoes. People want comfort food. They go to an Irish diner, you know, <laughs> and they go to a bar, you know. Like, this isn't comfort food, but people feel comfortable so you can call it whatever you want as long as we stay in business forever i'm fine with that that type label right so um you and and andrew met uh through through the cookbook or before that no we met beers no i used to live uh on the block well i lived in the neighborhood first and then on the block i Mm -hmm. moved to a different apartment but i lived right stone's throw from red cat lucky you when red cat opened and you know, that restaurant, although there were certainly others around, but way west Chelsea, which is where it's located, was sort of a, a restaurant wasteland. Yeah. And so early in the day, my, my now wife and I, we were we were just dating at the time, but we used to go in at least once a week because it was there. We went in a lot for Sunday dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I started to get very friendly with Jimmy and with Jimmy's ex-business partner, Danny Abrams. Um, and that... As most of the books I've done have grown out of my social life. I mean, the truth. That's just the way it happens to work out. Um, And Jimmy and I just started talking about... So I met you in 99. Yeah. uh, And then we did the book five, six years later. Yeah, I think it was maybe 2004. came out in 2006. And from the second I met Andrew, I just thought, you know... Well, besides totally digging him and his wife Mm -hmm. and having fun talking with him and, you know, experiencing life with him, I I thought, if I ever have an opportunity to do a cookbook, this is the dude that I'm doing it with. Mm -hmm. There was no thought or questions like we i i i really enjoy this man's company and i I think he's a cool cat and he's very smart and you know if 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 the if the cards are there that that's what i i really want to do yeah and at the time i lived on the block where the red cat was and once every other wednesday night we would test recipes and Mm -hmm. at the time uh jimmy still had the harrison restaurant which closed a couple years ago and he said to me uh uh, I got this young, uh, was he a sous chef? Uh, Harold? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I got this young sous chef. I think I'm going to bring him in to help us test recipes. And that was a young, unknown Harold Dieterle. Yeah. Um, and the three of us would get in the prep kitchen at the Red Cat every other Wednesday night uh, awesome. and test recipes. And then usually I'd go home with a um, like a parfait glass with whatever Sunday 
uh, they were serving, and I'd walk home with the glass and bring it back the next day. That was my like post testing treat. That's and hilarious. I remember walking by like the Half King bar and you know with your with, ice cream sundae, with my ice cream sundae, <laughs> and draw, you know everybody at the Half King looking at me like I was some kind of lunatic. Um, but uh, yeah, that was you know that was our history. So you've known each other a long time, and what were you at a bar? doing shots of Maker's Mark or something when you decided you wanted a radio show? How did this come about? What was uh, the impetus so the, for the The, the quick show? story on the show was we had both separately guested on a couple of shows here on Heritage. Yeah. Uh, Michael Lameco's show. I had also done Michael Harlan Turkel's show, The Food Scene. And um, I guess the feeling was uh, between uh, Jack Inslee and uh, who's looking at me through the glass and Aaron Fairbanks. And Jimmy got the same feedback. Hey, you know, you guys, you're pretty good on the air. You should pitch us a show. Um, we actually had an idea for a show. Oh, Shift well, Drink. Shift right? Drink. We wanted to do a show called Shift Drink, where we were going to go out in the field and go drinking with different chefs each week. Kind of like Vice Munchies mm-hmm. is a little bit. Or, or Chef Drunk History. <laughs> right. <laughs> we were going to go out and do that in the field, and it just... It, that sounds we, good. Yes, but it, 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 it was more of a technological burden than mm-hmm. we could bear. So we loved the idea. We just knew we weren't going to be able to do it. Um, and then this show... It just kind of organically came up. I don't even know well, how me, we we just kept. I don't know. It was this thing in the background, like yeah, it'd be fun to do something. We'd like to do something together. Right. Um, when you have a collaborator, and uh, you know, it, it it's really a magical thing. And I had such a great experience with the cookbook. I was you know always thinking, I just want to do more with Andrew whenever whenever the opportunity comes up, mm-hmm. like the like the cookbook. You know, not not just calling every day. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? But you know, through conversations over the years like let's just do something again together and you know andrew told you a little bit more about the process of of how we how we came here and do this Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know for me it's just like i i really enjoy collaborating with andrew on you know i guess so far books and radio i don't know what it'll be next but hopefully we'll be doing it documentary film documentary right or like a buddy a buddy comedy romance we'll be we'll be handcuffed for uh, 90 minutes i see i see you in the next hangover we'll get something on netflix soon but you know i think one of the things about the show that we thought uh, when we started talking about it is because uh, I don't think it's that usual to have a chef and a writer paired up. Um, you know, it is to have a writer kind of ghostwriter collaborate with the chef. That's very normal. Right. But we like the idea of a show where some weeks, you know, we would have um, chefs and writers together uh, and some weeks we would just have chefs. Uh, and then what we're doing today, which was very deliberate, it's not that we couldn't book other guests today, but in the spirit of kind of this conversation we're having with you, you know, it was always part of our thought. And we just, you know, when the show started, there were a lot of, we're only, this is our ninth episode. Um, you know, there were a lot of big stories at the beginning of the year. You know, Kat mm-hmm. Kinsman launched her Chefs with Issues program. And um, and then tragically, there was Chef Violet's suicide. Um, there was the Chris Schoenberger and Justin uh, Beloy's piece in right. First We Feast. And there were these things that felt very much like what we wanted to talk about, which was, uh, or what we wanted the show to be, which was a, a place that we uh, booked and planned in real time each week to talk about what was going on that week. Mm-hmm. Not every week presents a big story. Uh, and then we've started doing like what we did a few weeks ago with Gabe McMacken and Justin Smiley, which was what, you know, an all shop talk 
episode, which actually for us was one of our favorite shows. You know, we love like the old show Car Talk. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the reasons we wanted to do it our, the show ourselves today. You know, there's a show called The Tennis Podcast that I'm in love with. Right. It's always the same two hosts. Uh, stuff You Missed in History Class. Stuff You Missed in History Class. There's a show I'm, I love called Film Spotting. These shows are mostly just the two hosts, which is not what we're going to do always, but it's something we always thought um, was something we wanted to do sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so that's what we're going to do when we, you know, wrap up with this portion of the show. Um, but that, um, you know, it just seemed to us that it might give people, uh, you know, as somebody who started off very much as an outsider, and now to some extent, I feel, you know, like uh, as much a part of the cooking trade as one can be without actually doing it. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I take for granted now the stuff that I'm privy to see and hear mm-hmm. about the industry. And I, th- we just thought like a place where people could talk the way Jimmy and I might talk or Jimmy and I and the other guests who've been in the room might talk. If we all found ourselves out for a drink, you know, at 11 o'clock one night, that was sort of the idea of the show. I mean, it was really that simple. Right. Um, and that's, that's what it is. Yeah. I think it's been great. I mean, thank you. The, uh, thank you. It's getting a lot of buzz in the industry, and I think having the perspective of a writer who's been in the business for as long as you have and a chef who's been in the business, we've all been around a long time. It's nice to have that energy, and it fills, a, a, I think, a real gap in the conversation about the industry that has not been here today. Thank you very so. much. Yeah, I mean, I guess that would be the other thing for us is that um, – you know, so much of what gets communicated these days is communicated in very small bites, you know, no pun intended. But, you know, you get, I mean, you you know, it's not that unusual to say to someone, oh, did you hear about this? Oh, yeah, I saw it on my Twitter feed. But, you know, they yeah. click through and actually read the article. If they did read the article, it might be some very hurriedly written three-paragraph thing. Um, it's very common to hear chefs talk about, you know, giving 90 minutes or an hour of time to a journalist and then they, a piece gets written that's oh, I mean, like, this you is know, my biggest, my biggest pet peeve, you know, but a piece gets written that's like really small for whatever reason. And so again, you know, for us and any chefs who are listening, please, you know, keep this in mind, you know, our dream, well, David Kinch came on our third episode. He had just opened his new place, the Bywater two days before he was on. That's like a dream that's for awesome. us, you know, or people who have news that's breaking, and want a place where they can come on and actually have a conversation about it beyond, you know, the sentence uh, from them that's in their press release. Right, or, it's not going to be edited down to 140 or, characters. Or edited or taken out of context. Yeah. So, um, you know, we kind of, you know, without wanting to kind of kiss people's butts when they're here, um, we did want it to be, you know, again, we thought a chef and a writer together would sort of give people this sense of sort of a, tr- I guess what I call it, a trusted place to come and talk about things it's like a culinary living room it's very comfortable here i recommend i recommend that you come whoever you you are thank you we got to use that line um well with that we're going to shift gears yeah um and andrea feel free to jump in i know you haven't seen these movies but i haven't um uh so again we're we're gonna have a conversation about um these two chef documentaries king george which again is erica frankel's documentary about george perrier in the last days of lebec fenn and For Grace, which is Kevin Pang and Mark Helenowski's film about Chef Curtis Duffy in Chicago and the birth of his restaurant, Grace. Um, and as we were saying, Jimmy, I mean, there is, there is, there is such a wealth of uh, 
filmmaking like this right now. There's our friend Mike Colomeco, who's also a, 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 has a show here on Heritage. Uh, his show Real Food has been around for a long time. Um, there's Mind of a Chef. Uh, Chef's Table just got renewed for three seasons with an amazing list of chefs that they're going to profile. There was Paul Liebrandt's uh, Matter of Taste. And I guess what maybe, um, you know, we talked briefly last week about um, the George Perrier film, but I think what maybe would be a good place to start, uh, and then we'll take a break and get into all this in more detail, I think what's, what's maybe useful about these films is, you know, what do you get from each thing that distinguishes it, right? So for me... Uh, for Grace, the film about Curtis Duffy. You know, I was watching it, and and I should say these both are available on video on demand. And For Grace, about a week ago, became available on Netflix. Um, you know, I was watching it, and I thought, gosh, you know, this is very familiar to me, having seen the Paul Liebrandt film, A Matter of Taste. You know, it starts off; he's at a restaurant. Curtis is um, where he's not very happy. You know, Matter of Taste began with Paul at Papillon. Mm-hmm. Um, and they start talking about um, this uh, new project that he has in mind. Um, but then the film, and if people have read... Um, Kevin Pang actually wrote a very long article uh, that kind of traces the narrative of the film, basically, uh, for the Tribune a couple of years ago. Um, but the... Um, you know, you get this really horrific sort of backstory that Curtis has... Um, you know, family tragedy that involved a murder-suicide. Um, and I think what very much comes through and what I would say distinguishes this film in a way that I don't feel like I've seen it in other movies is this notion of the kitchen as a surrogate family, of the kitchen as a sanctuary, right. um, which I think is something that all uh, cooks relate to, or most cooks. How, do a you agree with that? Of, a band of like-minded misfits. <laughs> Right, but writ large. I mean, his backstory is so horrible. Yeah. Um, but, you know, through adversity, there, there's oftentimes triumph, you know, Phoenix rising from the ashes. And, and there's a lot of that in the in the culinary field. What what drove you to get into it? You know, was it this or that? Or And, and when we were getting into it, it certainly wasn't, oh, mom and dad said I should do that. You know, it was just the opposite. Right. So, you know, um, you hear a good amount of stories of people having incredible life challenges you know whether they're family or personal or all the above and they find something that makes them feel calm and and they find their serenity and they find a voice or a way and um you know i found it in a room that's called a kitchen and a lot of other people did as well subsequently that we see you know one of the great things about this interest in the business is we get to talk about it more and not just you know those guys in the back that are you know fat and drunk and you know misfits yeah maybe we are maybe we're not but you know there's there's two sides or there's more sides to the story any story than just the one side that's being said at the moment you know so it's a great opportunity for people to really see what it's like and what it takes to achieve you know success at whatever level you want in the in the restaurant business or in in a professional kitchen yeah well that's we'll talk about that when we come back maybe something these two films very much have in common yeah. is two people who really 
um, give give their lives, leave it all on the field, at, and give it all on the field, give it all to the field. And, and you know, one is maybe a little bit more about ending, and one is maybe a little bit more about beginning. And you know, there's a lot to learn from you know both sides of entering into a business. You know, nothing lasts forever. You know, so agreed. So uh, we're chatting here with Andrea Strong, and uh, we're talking about the documentaries For Grace and King George, and we're going to pick up on both those films when The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew returns after this break. Brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew. We're talking about chef documentaries, specifically two that debuted recently on Video On Demand, uh, King George about Chef George Perrier in Philadelphia, and For Grace about Curtis Duffy of uh, Grace Restaurant in Chicago. By the way, Jimmy, did you notice the incredible utility of the word grace for headlines, for articles, for... Um, uh, for metaphors, for, for tattoos, for tattoos, <laughs> uh, it's it's a it's a name that really lends itself to talking about and depicting that restaurant and that story. Um, you know, we were talking a minute ago about um, the, the rest uh, kitchens as as sort of sanctuaries, uh, as places that uh, conjure up surrogate families. I think both these films really give a sense of that. Um, you know, we spoke last week briefly about uh, in King George, the, this moment where you realize that George Perrier is spending his birthday uh, working in the restaurant. If anyone uh, didn't hear that, it's in the first five minutes of, of episode eight of our uh, show. Um, but uh, in this movie, there is, uh, well, first of all, you know, kitchen can be a lot of different things. And what's so amazing to me, and I think you'd agree with this, Jimmy, the, the relationship in this movie which begins, and they actually have a shot of it, with Curtis Duffy as a little boy taking a home ec class, which he feels like is a thing that girls do. He doesn't want to learn how to sew, and, you know, it really kind of... Rather skateboard. Yes, it really offends his his sort of, you know, uh, you know prepubescent sense of masculinity, right? Um, and they have a shot of the kitchen classroom. It's the most adorable little classroom. Susie Homemaker. And... There's this woman, uh, and we meet her in the film uh, several times, named Ruth Snyder, who was his teacher, and it's, it's an amazing relationship. And she really, usually when you think about the kitchen saving someone, you think about someone going into a kitchen as a, as a teenager, professionally, and getting their first job. This was someone who had a family tragedy and connects with this home ec teacher in a way that profoundly changed his life and it's a relationship he still has to this day and this to me was something completely wow, unique amazing. it was amazing i've never first of all just that relationship is unique but then to also uh 
you know, have this document of it, this video document of speaking to her, speaking to him, seeing the classroom, seeing her visit the restaurant. Yeah, it's a real privilege to to see it unwind. You know, to to me, one of the more one of the interesting things is the longevity. You know, and in this instant society, and also you know, with people, you move. You know, things happen. Whatever happens, and. They stumbled into this relationship together, and it just continues to grow and bloom and blossom. And, you know, they both are really fulfilled by it many, many, many years later. And, you know, that's that's a that's a real life success story, you know? Yeah. And the other thing that's interesting to me, and maybe we should take a moment on it, um, you know, there's a lot. Uh, that's been the whole issue of women in the kitchen has been very much in the news. I think it really that time magazine piece a few years ago, you know, lit a fuse that hasn't quite, you know, burned itself out yet. It comes, it comes up a lot. We talked about it here recently. We're doing a whole show about it in two weeks, two weeks. Um, but you know, it's really interesting to me. This character of Ruth Snyder really exists in opposition to almost any sort of chef mentor, figure you've ever seen you know there's a there's a painfully uncomfortable moment in this movie where uh curtis who had worked at charlie trotter's goes in to eat or attempts to go in to eat i should say late in the restaurants uh, it's last summer right um and uh trotter confronts him i guess curtis's name had been on a a lawsuit on a law a class action suit And and uh, he's walking into dinner. Graham Elliott Bowles is with him, and yeah. and he's Curtis is wearing a suit. And uh, Trotter says, uh, "You sue anybody lately?" And there's this incredibly. I won't get too much into what is said, but it is incredibly uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. Um, it ends with Trotter saying, "You better get the fuck out of here." Right. Um, and and really, I guess conceivably, you know, also Grant Ackett's who we is interviewed in this film, who Curtis also worked for, but. You know, when people talk about, especially male chefs, the sort of their mentors, it's very often they talk about, oh, he kicked my ass. Right. You know, this is what well, you hear. You know, there is really only two ways to lead. You know, you nurture them and you bring them along with you and or you like, in other words, you don't usually shift. You you, you treat everybody differently, but is moving the team forward. You know, like I'll use like a, a sports analogy, like Bill Parcells joins the Giants. So listen, you're going to hate me. I couldn't care less because in a year and a half when we get the ring, you're going to hug and kiss me. But until then, you're not going to have one nice thing to say about me. And I'll make sure of it, you know, where, you know, Ruth and, you know, other people, other coaches, other other ways to do it are a little bit more with the honey and with the nurturing. Wasn't Gabe saying that last week or two weeks ago on your show, talking about... Gabe McMackin. Yeah, yeah that's Finch, a very that different was, thing. Well, yeah. We've all had somebody in our life that brought us along in a kind and nurturing way, or, or hopefully we've all had. I, I certainly have. And then we've all had somebody inspire us with, you know, fear and intimidation. And this, you know, it's just not good enough. And until it is, I'm not going to speak to you in any other way besides this wildly harsh and... and and you know demanding judgmental way yeah um something else we see uh and you know i mean if you're gonna sue your boss 
<laughs> you might not be welcome in well, the restaurant. Well, you shouldn't go to dinner there. <laughs> no, but in Choose the movie, well, we have to point out, in the movie, he does say he has no recollection of, of signing on to this yeah, suit. But he has let me, no let me, recollection No, there was a class action suit. Right. Okay. It was a class action let suit. Me, let me round that out for you. I was in the same exact position. I took a job once. I shook somebody's hand, and my deal was, we, you won't, we won't pay you overtime. Sure, fine. I left the job. Several years later, I get a check in the mail. I don't remember ever signing a piece of paper saying that I'm joining a class action lawsuit. I get a check in the mail. But there was a class action suit. I, it had to be. But again, this was, you know, 15, 20. This was more than 20 years ago. So, you know, basically, I took the chip check i put it in an envelope i mailed it to my boss and i said listen i made the deal with you i'm going to stick to the deal i made here's the money back wow. and it was more than 10 less than 20 grand i needed it i was a cook you know no cook has any right. money i had dreams i wanted to go to europe i wanted to hang out i wanted to be in new york i wanted to work for you know my heroes but at the end of the day you know we're only as good as the word we have and like just as we're only as good as the last thing we made and like i shook on a deal and i wasn't gonna you know negate that deal just for some some money in my pocket that i didn't expect to have coming to me okay that's it fair enough (laughs) (laughs) um let's talk about you know something else we see in this film is um in in for grace is the the coming together of a new restaurant we should say it's a very expensive restaurant they they spend uh, you know, it's funny. We were talking about our friend Harold Dieterle. You know, years ago, I wrote that when Top Chef uh, debuted and the prize was $100,000 of money to open a restaurant. And I wrote, I was doing a piece on Harold, and I wrote that, you know, any, all of us who are around the business, at least in New York, thought that was hilarious because you could maybe buy your tables and chairs for that much money. Maybe. Maybe. And in this movie, we find out they spent $900,000. No, no, 90 grand on chairs. I'm sorry, 90 grand. On chairs. $2.5 yeah. million. Dollars. So that gives a sense of the expense of this restaurant, which they basically built from scratch. You see the space, the raw space they start with. Right. That's the point I would make. You know, if you if you want to bring something in less expensively, you have to buy an existing space and then turn it into your own space. If you're going to build from raw, you're going to spend millions of dollars. If you're going to change something, uh, not change the usage, but change the look and the feel, you have an opportunity to spend less money. So, But, hey, listen, you know, their goal was the best restaurant in Chicago, the best restaurant in America. They, they, they couldn't have adapted somebody else's space. They couldn't have gone into a space and changed it enough to make it unique enough to make that, that, that statement and to run forward with it. Yeah, and it, I think it's really fascinating to watch the – thoughtfulness with which they make decisions as they go along. It's beautiful. You know, when there's a moment where they're talking about those chairs and and the support for the table, and if you're sitting, you know, and a character who I love, another character I love, Michael Mooser, I I hope I'm pronouncing that right, his... uh, Curtis's partner in the restaurant, um, they'd worked at, a, at the restaurant Avenues together before this, you know, saying, do your feet touch the base of the table? If so, it's a fail. Right. Right. They and it's were really critical of themselves. Of, like if, if every, it's not this, then we fail. Yeah. And if you're walking and they're standing at one point in basically a blank, a, you know, black box of a space almost. If you're walking from here to here, you have these awkward two steps. I mean, they're really... Right. Uh, it really does give you sort of a look into the kind of mindset. And again, you talk about dedication. It's not just about being in a functioning restaurant, you know, for the hours that one puts in. Uh, but it's also about um, 
building that restaurant, designing it. And uh, sharing it with somebody else, sharing sh- the process yeah. with someone else. It's, you know, it's how I feel about working with you as a collaborator. Watching those two was just hugely exciting to me because you're never going to agree on everything and you're never going to get along about everything. But at the end of the day, the way they operated together and what they brought forth is, is magical to me. Speaking of uh, collaborators, I don't know if you saw Joy Manning's piece in Eater. Uh, I think it went up yesterday about Steve Cook and Michael Solomonov yes. yeah, and yeah. just yes. sort of about the silent collaborators and sure. the credit that they really haven't gotten. And I thought that was just a great story and um, really shines a light on a part of the business that doesn't get, I mean, the chef is always the one in the limelight. What about the guy who's making every, or or woman like Ellen Yin right. at High Street on Market? Sure. Uh, who's or, making or Ron Howard in, in Glazer, you know? <laughs> Everybody <laughs> says it's a Ron Howard film. <laughs> Brian well, Glazer, exactly. Yes. But yeah. yeah, I mean, it is, I mean, there are also these partnerships uh, today, um, you know, where the partner is very visible, you know, like Nick Kokonis and, and Grant or Joe Bastianich and Mario. True, true. Which I've always thought was, you know, uh, a real good safeguard against a lot of the things that have caused some of the historic, some of the professional divorces. Yeah, you avoid the rift. That have happened years ago is by both people being in the limelight and each person sort of um, kind of getting what they need on that front. I think it oftentimes can help uh, shore up against resentments that can develop. I think it depends on the people. Um, But, you know, Jimmy, we talked about this idea. Both of these films really show... Um, and, you know, we are talking about chefs who, in their own ways, they're different generations, uh, Perrier and, and Duffy. Um, they're different nationalities, although both operated in the U.S. Um, they but, are cut from the same cloth. They're huh? cut from their, they have a lot in common. And there is a scene. We talked about the birthday card scene last week from uh, uh, King George. But, you know, there's a Thanksgiving scene shortly before grace opens there's a thanksgiving scene in this movie um and it really to me again i think one of the things this film shows and focuses on more than most other documentaries i've seen is this idea of the kitchen team as a family you know what do you call the the staff meal at a, at a restaurant it's family meal yeah um and they have this thanksgiving dinner and most of the people in attendance at the dinner are people from the team of this not even yet opened restaurant. And it did hit me that a lot of people I know who have owned restaurants, um, and maybe more so in the past because so many places are open on Thanksgiving now, but there's places even that aren't open on Thanksgiving still where they keep the doors locked and they do a Thanksgiving dinner for the, for the team. For the yeah. family, they do you know what you would call an orphan's Thanksgiving or a, what did you call it before we were talking uh, expat an expat Thanksgiving. But did this ring true to you? This notion it, it really struck me, um, at, you know the way that it captured what the team comes to mean for people who work in kitchens. I thought that was something that Four Grace did a really good job of putting its finger on and 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 illustrating through a couple of really almost side throwaway scenes but they stay with you yeah and and, and it might be a little broader than just the kitchen because ultimately you know we're all on the same team we work for the same you mean front of house whether it's front of the house or back of the house but really you know hey listen it's a team sport right and we're only great when the team is great right and we do everything together and when that happens 
you have this camaraderie, you know, whether it's live stage in theater, actors or professional athletes. You know, these are all people that sacrifice their holidays and their birthdays, you know, doctors and nurses. They're all team things. And what it is in the restaurant business is you really you work with these people and you, you know, for lack of a better way to say it, you do battle with them every day and you you become close with them and you know they're part of your they're part of your 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 triumphs they're part of your your tribulations you know they're with you in the in the good and the bad and um it's 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 a real genuine thing that you know a personal achievement is one thing a personal achievement in a team sport is another thing and um you really don't know about it till you you get involved in it but it's just a feeling in a way that kind of takes over and you know it's a good feeling in a great way you know to 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 share and to have people around you and it's it's it can be very supportive and in this case you know Listen, if you can't be around on a holiday and you, you know, enjoy the holiday and want to share it with people, it was it's really warm and, and touching to see how they did it. You know, the restaurant wasn't even open, yet they made restaurant – they didn't, you know, fake it and make home food. They made the the, right. the food they wanted to make in the restaurant, but yeah. for Thanksgiving. I, yeah. That, to me, was one of the cooler things about it because everybody was so on board with the momentum and the idea that they wanted to bring forward there's really no replacing that feeling and it's it's very hard to describe that type of feeling when you get like-minded people together and you get the the bus or the locomotive going at a certain speed you know it's 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 remarkable what a group of dedicated people can do together it is and you see what it means to them i mean there's more than one occasion in this movie where you see people brought to tears yeah you know? I mean, I've been brought to tears by my staff many, many times. It's, it's again, when you share with people on that. Listen, when you're trying to work on a high level and you're trying to share on a high level, it's exhausting. It's frustrating. But, you know, again, the triumphs that you have in a team sport, you know, are just so remarkable that a lot of times, you know, words fail you. And, you know, your emotions are, are right What's right behind your words is your emotions, and they come right out. Well, you know, to that point about words failing you is, is just a side thing, I guess. But, you know, there there is a moment where uh, in For Grace where Curtis reads this letter that his father who – and it's really tragic. I mean, the guy obviously had a, emotional problems and went off some medication in the improper way and uh, ended up taking his mom uh, – abducting the mom and then killing his mom and then himself – and he reads to the camera this uh, letter that his father had left behind. Um, and there really was, and it reminded me of, I can't say who it was, but years ago I was working on something and there was a chef who I barely knew who gave me incredible amounts of time, just incredible amounts of time. And at one point I said to him, I, why? I didn't want to look a gift horse in the mouth, you know, but like, why are you giving me all this time? And he would never have used the word therapy. But what I realized was that I was functioning almost like a therapist. (laughs) And I really had this feeling, and I don't know Curtis, and I don't know if he partakes of uh, some kind of therapy or ever did, but there really is this unbelievable um, intimacy, almost the tone of a confessional, that... um, uh, that Helenowski and Pang, the people who made this movie, uh, who must have just had incredible trust with him. Um, but there are moments, like the reading of that letter probably would be the most uh, extreme one, yeah. where you really do feel like somebody is absolutely you know, bearing their soul to right. you in a way that I found really stunning. I mean, totally. I really did. 
just you know to share on that level again it's it's remarkable I, unfortunately i know that moment and i call that moment the why me moment you know and for me it told the story in a certain way where he used the why me moment as you know not immediately after grief and the process but he he used it to take large dedicated steps forward and you know i don't know what the what the stats are on the why me moment but you really have two choices you know you sit still or you go backwards and or you just go forward pick up the pieces and try to make something out of it um you know again we were talking about adversity and breeding things and people that are remarkable you know some of the most remarkable people have some of the most adverse or tragic stories or backgrounds sure not exclusively obviously there's no magic bullet in the conversation but you know what he did with the why me moment choosing to walk it forward and the way he walked it forward was a. Uh, it's it's a really good story and you know the the final part of it where he is now it's 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 hugely impressive it is and we haven't even touched on the fact that in the middle of all this and and uh i think one of the few people who's not interviewed is his ex-wife but there is a divorce you know he doesn't see his children i lost his family twice yeah well well said um so you do see the very and again it really does relate to the um uh, to the uh, King George, to the Perrier story, in terms of these are guys who really. Oh yeah, when he got the James Beard Award, what did he do? Right, went up on stage and said he's sorry to his daughter for never being home. For never being home. That, her that, whole that, life. The I have, of I have goosebumps. In the restaurant industry is is unfathomable. Well, I think commitment, yeah. commitment equals Commit- sacrifice, yeah, and mean, the higher the commitment, uh, the more the sacrifices. You know, but again, restaurant business uh, uh, to me it's a team sport kind of thing too. You know, like we were saying, sports. Live theater. You know, live theater always goes on. They're working all the time, and they're only as good as the people around them. And, you know, like, this is a cook show or a chef show, but, like, we're, we're, we're only as good as, as the dish staff, and the live stage people are only as good as the riggers. You learn to share with people on such a level, and it's such a diverse group of people. It's, it's wildly oh, yeah. remarkable. Yeah. Well, I, I, I guess we would really recommend both of these films to people. They're totally. both very short. I'm King George, about an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, Four Grace, about an hour and a half. Both readily available in various video-on-demand platforms. And with that, uh, we're going to wrap up today's show. Andrea Strong, thank you for coming in. It was my pleasure. I'm scandalized so that here. you've never been to the Heritage uh, Radio Network before. Well, thank you for ending that uh, horrible legacy of me never being here. <laughs> now, of course, I'll be invited back many times. You're going to have your own show <laughs> soon. Right, enough. right. Uh, Jimmy and I are taking next week off. And then uh, on the 24th, we're going to have a show we mentioned some time ago. Uh, Aaron Fairbanks, the executive director of Heritage Radio Network, is going to come in and kind of take over the pilot seat. We'll be here participating, um, but we're going to have a conversation about a number of issues regarding women in the kitchen, uh, in the pro kitchen, uh, that have been swirling around for the well, really the last few years, but a few things that have peaked uh, recently. Uh, this, the the incredible gender imbalance in the in the short list of beard um, uh, finalists. 
uh, for the James Beard Awards, uh, the uh, maternity leave. Yeah, I wrote about that this summer for Open for Business. Yeah, and, uh, it's, it's it's an issue that's keeping women from leading at the rate that they should be leading because yeah. they don't have any support. So we're going to take this on. Jimmy and I will be the only two guys here, but we're not going to run that show. We're going to turn that over to Aaron, which we thought was the appropriate way to go about that. That'll be on the twenty. 20- Fourth, uh, if you'd like to follow us, you can follow the show on Twitter at at Chef Podcast. We're also on Facebook, The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew is our page. Please like us there to keep track of what we're doing. And with that, uh, we will see you back in two weeks on The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew. I'm Andrew Friedman. I'm Jimmy Bradley. Thanks for listening. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.